My name is Andrew McGowan. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical Trequartista, I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, underdiscussed, or particularly important to a sustainable high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Um, the podcast is a bit late this month because uh, I've been really busy with school and there's been a lot of performances going on. And, um uh, I've had a lot of pieces get played, which has been really fun to clinic and record those. And uh, being able to do premieres is one of my favorites. But um, there's just there's been a lot of things going on, and I've been really tired. And I wanted to make sure that everything I put out for y'all was high quality. And what's really interesting about this week is that it's um, a bit of a reflection on some of the things that have happened. But broadly speaking, um, emotional goodbyes are underrated. And they're one of the most powerful things that we can experience as people. And I wanted to unpack that some. This has come up in a really interesting way. Um, so uh, one of my teachers, uh, Steve Peterson, and his wife, uh, Beth Peterson, are leaving the University of Illinois. They're retiring. And after such storied careers in uh, music and music education and how much they've contributed to uh, the industry that I work in. Uh, it's created a really powerful experience, especially um, because of how much love they've poured into the University of Illinois. It's really powerful. And is it's so fascinating to me how uh, palpable um, it was like to feel the energy and like both the love and the joy and the grief at, uh, their final concert at, uh, at the university, which was last night and very much a celebration of everything they've contributed to the institution in, uh, the time that they've been here. And it was interesting seeing the music they selected for the concert. Um, so I play I play in the Wind Symphony, the one that uh, Dr. Steve Pearson conducts, and um, it's a very emotional concert for me, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, because of um, how much he and I have been able to connect and uh, develop our relationship as student and teacher over the course of our time together. But um, everything on the program is something I have a a pretty emotional connection with. Um, we opened with uh, Dancing Fire by my friend Kevin Day. And uh, that piece is, I mean, it's so exhilarating, it's so joyful, it's so groovy, like a lot of the work that Kevin writes is. And it's powerful for me because it brings me so much joy to see a composer that I've come to know and consider my friend um, be so become so renowned um, at, at such a young age. And I feel very blessed to 
um, know Kevin even in the small amount that I do, but uh, to count him as a colleague and as a friend. And so it was very exciting to have that on the program. Next, we played the the um, Holst for Sweden E flat, which I really have come to understand is in as in as much as it is one of the most well known pieces in all of band, um, because it's so accessible for young musicians. The complexity and the difficulty of that piece is incredibly underrated, and it's such a well crafted piece of art. And it's so funny to me that in a time where band music especially is incredibly overscored. Um, everything about that piece is perfect. And I wish more people studied it because um, Holst had such an amazing command of exactly what every instrument could do and did everything so perfectly, especially in that piece. And I, I had the pleasure of encountering it uh, very early in my music career when I was in high school. And Every time I play it, I love it a little bit more, and as we, and that's that's come to be the case with every piece I've encountered while working um, with the Illinois Wind Symphony and with Dr. Peterson. There's so much emotion in the way he leads rehearsal and the way that uh, he interprets the music on the page that. Um, and being able to really explore with the high caliber musicians in the ensemble with me, like the depth of the musical understanding and the technical facility and the artistry that we can create, it created some seriously powerful moments this year. Uh, back in the fall semester, we, um, there after our second concert, we came back and he said, you know what, um, I had this kind of wild concert planned. I'm canning all of it. We're just going to play Pines of Rome. And I thought that'd be really cool. I didn't have, um, I, like I'd heard Pines of Rome, but I hadn't spent a ton of time with Pines of Rome at that point. And over, I think we had eight rehearsals on it. And eight two and a half hour rehearsals will get you very familiar with the piece. And now um, there are tears in my eyes every time I hear it. Because there's so much about that piece that's so perfect. It's so well crafted. And I love it so much. And a lot of that is because of the connection that Dr. Peterson helped build uh, with us. And the emotional connection he helped incorporate into the music. And then we played, uh, next on the concert, we played uh, David Mislanka's Fourth Symphony. Which might be my favorite piece of all time. It's the third time I've had the pleasure to play it. And this is the first time I've played Mislanka 4 since David passed away. Um, I, have a, I have a really deep connection with David as uh, kind of his student, kind of not. It's a very, it's a very peculiar relationship. My composition teacher during my bachelor's degree, Roy Magnuson, was David Mislanka's protege. And um, because David has such a deep relationship with Illinois State University, um, which is part of the reason I wanted to go there in the first place, because I heard his Fourth Symphony when I was a sophomore in high school, and I was invited to be in the balcony brass for it when Western Illinois University played it. It was a very powerful experience. And I remember him telling us that during the final trombone chorale that comes in, it's like near the end of the piece, um, he sets up Old Hundred, the the church hymn, um, 
earlier in the piece, and it's this incredibly powerful and visceral setting of the chorale across the entire band in this really wacky canon. And then he kind of like separates all of it. I'm, I'm going to talk about this more later. But he separates it into like basically free jazz <laughs> over the course of about 10 minutes. And then um, there's this really strange departure from it before he like convulges everything to have a recapitulation of the beginning of the symphony leading back into Old Hundred. And he had for this final setting of Old Hundred, he had uh, he had asked Dr. Fanzler if he could have balcony brass for it because the hall that we were playing it in has the really weird like split tiny balcony. So there's a little balcony on the left side behind the audience and on the right side behind the audience. And so we staffed uh, low brass players up there to be able to play the chorale with the trombones and euphoniums that were on stage. And he looked at us in the rehearsal and he said, low brass, here you are the pots of boiling oil that you would pour onto your enemies as they besieged your castle. And it's the craziest thing I ever heard a composer say in my whole life. It's such a visceral, powerful moment in a, such an incredible piece of music. Um, and I fell in love with that piece and, uh, I proceeded to listen to everything David had ever written. When I went to Illinois State and had the chance to play so much more of his music and, uh, I had the chance to take some lessons with him. It became a really powerful connection. And one of the things I've always loved about David's music is the power of the emotional contrast in it. And as much as there are moments of incredible beauty, there are other times where it's downright terrifying or absolutely angry. It's such a fascinating piece. And um, being able to spend time with it again, especially after David's passing, was incredibly emotional. And it, it helped me be at peace even though David passed so many years ago, it's like 2017, uh, it doesn't feel like that long ago. And I've played a number of his pieces since then, but this is the first time I've been able to play Symphony 4 since then. And it's an incredibly powerful experience, especially being able to perform it with Dr. Peterson and with so many other amazing musicians and create something that was really special in that space an energy that was palpable for so many reasons. And I think that's something David would be really inspired by. And then we close with the secret encore of Morton Lordson's or Monumentarium. Um, that's not a dry eye in the hall. I mean, it was, and it was so powerful to watch people like, cry on stage with how perfectly emotional and beautiful and stunning and joyful and how sorrowful that piece is at the same time. Um, a lot of people don't know that I have as big a choral music background as I do. Um, I sang in choir for about 14, 15 years and I had numerous years of voice lessons also. And... Um, that's been probably my favorite piece of choral music for as long as I can remember because it's as good as it gets. I've transcribed it for like six different ensembles. Um, um, I've sang it at least 12 times. Um, and the first time was back when I was uh, a junior in high school. It was a really powerful experience. It's a piece I love very dearly. And... Um,
and is is the perfect last thing to play with Dr. Peterson. Such a powerful experience. I've said that a lot of times. <laughs> but the thing I thought about so much this weekend, especially seeing all of my colleagues who are graduating to go on and do great and amazing things, um, and how I thought about how tearful goodbyes can be. And how in the moment they really suck like nothing else. But there's there's a power there like, like nothing else. Because only in the contrasts can we experience true goodness. Because anything that's too good to be true is too good to be true. There must be a darkness in order for there to be light. And in these tearful goodbyes, it helps us understand the emotionality and the humanity of the relationships that we build. And that these moments are fleeting because if they lasted forever, they wouldn't be special anymore. We would be complacent to them. And... It's what adds value and brings joy to the immense moments that we have with other folks in these spaces of collective humanity when we can share a space like Follinger Gray Hall at the Krenert Center and hear David Maslanka's Fourth Symphony or Martin Lauritsen's Romani Mysterium or Gustav Holst's First Suite in E-flat or Kevin Day's Dancing Fire so perfectly curated, so expertly performed to create that visceral emotion in our chest, that anger and that fear bubbling up, giving us the impulse to shout with the joy of life because in amongst all of that struggle, we've been able to find something beautiful and powerful. And it's so underrated. And it was... I think so emotional for a lot of us because, um, I mean, it's that end of the school year where so many things are happening at one time. I had a friend who had another gig that day um, on top of how uh, big that performance was. And um, I, had a, I had a performance on uh, Wednesday, a concert I played in, a concert on Monday that I played in. On top of like all of these rehearsals, all of this training for juries, and a lot of us had recitals within the last week or two. Spend so much at one time, and like having all of that emotion on the surface, just ready to explode out of you. There's a very, there's a very palpable energy, a very interesting and fascinating time, and. Uh, a concert like one I don't know I'll ever experience ever again. Because there was a desire to create something beautiful in that space. M more so than normal. I think all people go into concerts with that desire. But like there, there was a impetus. Uh, a certain... A certain extra something, that little more emotional, a sense of urgency. It's like, we're going to make this one count. 
in a way I'd never encountered before. And it was so fascinating. And it's so terrifying. And so exhilarating. And as I think back on it, um, I'm never going to forget that. How could you? Um, and it was so strange um, seeing, like, reflecting on my own emotional experience and how I don't think I had the bandwidth to grieve for David's passing in 2017 the way I wanted to because I didn't have a great understanding of myself and I was still trying to work so hard to prove that I belong somewhere rather than allowing myself enough time to rest and understand that the feelings that I have are real and good and they tell me about myself and why I'm certain feeling certain things and the things that I need and what I'm lacking in my life. And it was so... It was so interesting to see how, um, and as much as this concert was about um, celebrating the career of Dr. Peterson, for me, it also proved a reflection of uh, of how I never got to say goodbye to David, and how I wish I had, and how grateful I am that this time I, I didn't... Um, I was able to make those the the piece that I wanted to and to grieve the way that was accessible and create something beautiful and powerful with Dr. Peterson for one final time. It was a very strange and disconnected symbology. And it's very fascinating to me how um, the power of these emotional contrasts in as much as sorrow and anger and fear allow us to really understand what true happiness and joy and contentment means and understand the depth of our real love for each other. Because it's only in those emotional contrasts that we can truly understand what those emotions mean. Um, and how this, we really see this across all of humanity the more you think about it. Uh, my own expertise comes from uh, my study of physiology and uh, how much I've become in tune with my body over the last nine years. But um, the power of contrast in physiology is that in as much as the training must be incredibly intense and incredibly severe and incredibly intentional, the rest must be also in all of those ways in order for us to have the most intense uh, experience and power and longevity in exactly what we're trying to do and reach the heights and extremities of uh, our goals. So whether it's training for the marathon or learning to lift weights better um, or whatever you're looking to do with your physiology, just develop motor skills in as much as you need as many fantastic, perfect repetitions as you possibly can under the most intense position, uh, uh, most intense conditions, so you can sink to the level of your training without the most radical and high quality rest. Um, that you overtrain rampantly and expeditiously. And we, what we need to do is strive for a place where. Uh, we can have a balance between those two where we can have radical rest and radical training. Uh, for mentality, 
um, whether it's our mental health or our mental preparation, our mental strength, it's the same way. It's about quantity of repetitions that are high quality with rapid rest. I had a very interesting meeting this morning with um, Miriam Ploger. I'm planning to take um, our all skills lessons uh, through the Ploger method this summer. And one of the things we talked about is that um, allocating good time in order to create immense reps and repetitions and coming in with the highest level of content knowledge at the beginning so that we can be mindful and practical about the work that we're doing is so powerful. But all of that is only possible if we can create fluency. And you only create fluency by being able to be immersed and then have rest and recuperation. As I've come to better understand um, my own mental and emotional needs this uh, last couple of years, um, as somebody who's pretty high energy, it's really surprising when people find that I have a lot of introverted tendencies and that I feel my worst and my least emotional when I don't listen to them. And it's really important for me to kind of fall off the face of the planet every once in a while in order to feel like I'm being the person that I really want to be and that I'm living with integrity and that my art that I'm making is high quality and that the music that I'm performing is high quality and that my preparation is high quality because I need to spend time looking inward and discovering myself and appreciating the art that I love in order to get to a point where I can share with other people. And I love being around other folks because I have some pretty intense extroverted tendencies too, but I have to experience it in contrast in order to make the most of both of those times. Otherwise, it's really difficult. And we see that in our spirituality also. And this is where it comes to, um, whether you're religious or not, this idea of uh, all faiths come down to experiencing the highest possible joys only in contrast to the most intense fear or uh, pain. In Norse mythology, you see it as um, the, the vanquished warriors that achieve the highest um, glory in battle, getting to feast in Valhalla, and, but only until um, Ragnarok when um, the battle for the gods must be fought and they will inevitably be overcome. And so a revelry is only because there is a, a contrast in Christianity, you see it with uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and how through his suffering and his torture, uh, humanity is able to be redeemed. And the more you dig into other religious symbologies, the more you find these other things. The terror and the fear and the anger of humanity is what allows for this immense joy. Because... The fear of loss is where a lot of our grief comes from. The fear that these things are temporary. But they allow us to create a oneness with each other because of the love that we share. And that's what tells us that these things have value. It's our own piece of the hero's journey. Because the as, as Joseph Campbell, and I mean there are, there are some... There's some weirdness with Joseph Campbell, especially if you get into the polarity of some of his um, philosophies. But um, when he codified the hero with a thousand faces in the hero's journey archetype, 
the power and uh, of that archetype is this understanding that we leave uh, to change ourselves and return. And it is the return that helps us bring joy because we have grown and changed and become better versions of ourselves in order to work with other people. Whether that's a day-to-day -day journey or a year-to-year -year journey or a lifetime-to-lifetime -lifetime journey. And how you believe in those things can craft an interesting narrative for you. And the more we understand uh, evolutionary psychology, I don't have great sources for this, but it's pretty easy to find. I would encourage you to look that up because they're very powerful. The most important thing for humans is to be able to craft powerful stories for each other because we evolved in order to communicate through storytelling and we created the ability to freely imagine through storytelling and so whether you're trying to develop a sales pitch or convince yourself of something new or help create growth um, being able to craft a narrative that people can latch to is a powerful way to develop that. And it's for us to decide what our own piece of that hero's journey is. And it's the reason the hero's journey is such a powerful archetype is because it has all of these emotional contrasts. The idea that there's a sense of purpose when um, the magical helper delivers the advice or um, provides the help that allows the the hero to enter the imaginary world or them going down the road of trials and succeeding or the moment where they experience something close to death or loss or failure and everything seems to be gone and their ability to claw their way out and return changed and overcome all odds in order to return to their home and see that their home has changed also. And this emotional, visceral investment over the course of that time and that transformation and the contrast of um, the fear and the anger and the love and the joy that we experience throughout that process is what creates meaning for us. Because that is what the human condition is about experiencing all of those things as much as you can because as you creep into the extremities it become like the anger becomes more angry the fear becomes more fearful the sorrow becomes more sorrowful but only because that translates to more joy more love more belonging for the folks And we can find a place where um, we can be detached from some of the anger and the fear in some ways because there are things that we cannot control. And so maintaining some neutrality about that allows us to reach some state of contentment. Um, but the ones that we shouldn't let go of are the ones that are really important. Like these tearful goodbyes I talked about earlier. Because... There is anger in that this time couldn't take longer or that these things couldn't stay. And there's fear about what's to come because will we ever have an experience like this again? Or in some cases, will we ever see these people again? Um, 
Will we be ever, ever be able to have an experience this powerful another time? Will we have, be able to experience this same love and belonging again in such a same way with this community, with this energy, with this universal humanity that we've created in a moment like a concert we had this weekend? And that contrast is what helps remind us about how much joy and love there is in situations like that. And how does this show up in Symphony 4? Because I think David really puts uh, his finger on exactly what this needs to be. He talks about it, in fact. I have the program notes for Symphony 4 right here. The sources that give rise to the piece of music are many and deep. And it's possible to describe the technical aspects of a work, its construction principles and orchestration, but nearly impossible to write of its sole nature except through hints and suggestions. The roots of Symphony 4 are many. The central driving force is the spontaneous rise of the impulse to shout for the joy of life. I feel it is the powerful voice of the earth that comes to me from my adopted western Montana and the high plains and mountains of central Idaho. My personal experience of the voice is one of being helpless and torn open by the power of the thing that wants to be expressed, the welling up shout that cannot be denied. I'm set a quiver and am forced to shout and sing. The response in the voice of the earth is the answering shout of thanksgiving and the shout of praise. I think that's such a powerful idea and it's it's interesting to me how central it is to two of the other truly truly great works of classical music in Beethoven's Symphony 5 and 9 there is those pieces of music are in, in some cases extraordinarily aggressive um Symphony 5 well so Symphony 5 um the first movement in particular, I mean, so aggressive and so relentless. And there are moments of like contrasting light and dark, which is why it's so powerful. But there's so much anger and grief, especially in the earlier sections that build and build and build until the final movement, which is very much like the gates of the sky opening and the sun coming up over the hillside and and shining light for the first time over uh, a mountainside that has been held in darkness for a long time. And Symphony 9, very similarly, there's uh, so much darkness leading up to the point where the choir comes in to sing Ode to Joy. And Ode to Joy is an extraordinarily difficult piece for choir to sing because the ranges are so redonkulous. But um, the thing that comes across for me in particular is how Ode to Joy is, while obviously joyful is incredibly aggressive as though it was it was held back for so long like uh like a load of water against a dam that had just been building and building and building and building and eventually it splits it's like in lord of the rings if y'all seen lord of the rings um when the ants march to isengard and they pull back the dam that Saruman has built to re release the river Aizen and it pours out and just destroys all of the evil machinations and the torture pits that Saruman has constructed. It's that. And in 
in these great contrasts of anger and fear and sadness, we have the impetus to shout for the joy of life and love so much more deeply. And Symphony 4 does this so well. The beginning, it, it, I mean, the, the opening to Symphony 4 is so sublime and it's powerful, but contrasted by that really relentless, dark motive that's brought in uh, a little after like the first page of written music with this impetuous, like growing scale, growing into this cascading fugal pattern that's passed around the entire ensemble only to be drawn back and subsided. And I love how David phases in and out of these ideas. You can really tell that he studied with Stravinsky looking at this piece in particular because there are parts where, like, my teacher Steve Taylor talks about this sometimes, (laughs) especially in our orchestration class, where um, you know something's happening in Stravinsky when the measures on the page get tiny. (laughs) And David very much approaches his writing in a similar way, but where... Stravinsky tends to transition out of it by having an abrupt change where he'll build to this crazy idea and then have something amazing go on for a while where you're just like, holy cats, I can't believe this is happening, and then it drops down. And if, you wonder, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, listen to Rite of Spring and follow along with the score if you can. You'll know what I'm talking about immediately. David does a similar idea, but instead of building to this top idea and dropping down immediately and not necessarily going through the most strict of musical forms in as much as Stravinsky would have idea A and go to idea A adjacent and then idea B and then a different A idea idea adjacent and then a different B idea adjacent so that you can tell there's a motive that's shifting around the whole time, but it's not the most strict of musical sonata form or uh, ABA form or whatever form you decide to analyze it as. It becomes very interesting to look at it that way. But uh, but instead of transitioning extraordinarily abruptly like Stravinsky would, it's really interesting that this, what David tends to do is he'll he'll build to this climax and rather than change abruptly, he like creates a, a mirror image but fading out. So you have these ideas that fade in and out of each other in a very interesting um, minimalist style, not un... From not indifferent or indifferent uh, to uh, a composer like Philip Glass or Steve Reich or John Adams or John Luther Adams, and it's fascinating to me that he approached tonal music in this way because you can weave a tapestry of ideas that seem like they're several different pieces together in an extraordinarily fluid fashion. And in Symphony Four, in particular, uh, the way he does that is these settings of. Um, these hymns by Johann Sebastian Bach in a way where um, he can transition them to a load of different styles. And uh, the most iconic of these, especially in this piece, is um, his use of Old Hundred. Um, Because the first use of Old Hundred is this very iconic, like, huge explosion of sound from a trumpet and uh, trombone crescendo to this canon that's split over the ensemble in three different sections in this really like super fascinating very visceral manner and it explodes out of this very thin very consonant texture that's been this like subsiding very sublime very flowing restful moment 
and then we have you have this explosion of a chorale that pulls back to this very cinematic, probably one of my favorite moments in Western music, honestly. It's a very cinematic moment of uh, very ambient percussion sounds where you have bowed vibraphone and maraca and all of these very, very simple ambient elements going on that have a, a melodic content that's going on. And the way it was described one of the times when I performed this piece was uh, the conductor said it's it's like if you're watching a nature documentary and they have a close-up of a leaf that has a single raindrop on it and you're watching the sun glint off that raindrop and you're, you see it hit the tip of the leaf and you wonder whether it's going to drip off before the horn section like blindsides you with this huge descending line and the rest of the ensemble comes in and it's like they zoom out of the leaf and you see the entire earth and how it's spinning around the sun all at one time and it's a very cinematic piece of music in that way and these contrasts have like both this like very ethereal like almost nothing going on like two percussion instruments that overall are incredibly soft are the only thing filling the space to the entire ensemble is playing this very impetuous uh rhythmic pattern with this soaring melody and the horns and low brass over it i mean it's just so well made but this creates an interesting situation of talking about like um, how to create these really visceral moments and how to do it without overscoring a band piece. Because like I was talking about the Holst, um, there's so much band music that's it, it, it has an idea of like everybody should be playing all of the time so nobody gets bored. But that actually defeats the, uh, the purpose of creating great music most of the time. And David is so good about having that contrast of like there's nothing going on and then there's everything going on. And you can only have opportunities to make everything go on if you have moments where there's not very much going on. Otherwise, it's just too much all of the time. And you can actually get a really good kind of sensory overload from something like Symphony 4 or the Horse for Sweet and E Flat where you have everything handled so expertly that it's not a problem if you have everybody playing as loud as they can at some point because you've created a way for that to sound organic and in context. And this impo- and Mazalka 4 is a difficult piece to play in as much as, uh, I mean, there's the length requirement, there's the technique requirement, there's the musicality requirement, but because the music is so powerful emotionally it's really a difficult piece to play um because it requires so much emotional investment and it's difficult piece to hold back on i we were touching a few spots in rehearsal before the concert yesterday and one of the things i was thinking about is it's very difficult to hold back because and maybe i'm in a bit of a different situation than some folks because i have such a personal relationship with david's music and i had a a relationship with him as a student even for a very short time but having this the um, the emotional impetus to shout for the joy of life through the music that i'm performing uh it was very it was very difficult to try to hold that back um, in rehearsals in order to make sure I had enough face to make it through the concert. And I think that provides a really, uh, again, it provides a really interesting contrast to what we'd normally think because, uh, and that, and that's part of like creating that mental fortitude. Do you have, do you have the ability to hold things back when they need to be held back? 
And it's very difficult, especially because like you want to be able to pour everything that you have into those moments of immense beauty that you're able, that you're capable of curating. Because otherwise, it's not as palpable to to the audience. And going back to Symphony Four, um, this moment of uh, so we have Old Hundred. And it's really interesting seeing the transition from that into when he has Old Hundred voiced as uh, what sounds like free jazz. It's a very interesting uh, way of voicing a scherzo in a symphony. And one that I think, even though it's extraordinarily frustrating to put together, is extraordinarily effective in my opinion. But the way that he contrasts between this is this very minimalist idea of a phasing single line that's just relentless in its rhythmic uh intensity um this these motives of sa pa 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 or sa ka 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 and how he phases in between those with these um interesting uh melodic ideas over it that seem rather out of place but so perfect like they don't have loads of other connection to other pieces, places in the symphony necessarily. They're very disjointed, very, um, uh, they're full of elisions and they create all of these interesting uh, song-like textures. But song is something that David creates so fluidly that it's impossible to say that it's out of place. But it's really interesting to me to see this like a minimalist phase in and out of all of these different sections in order to basically pull old hundred apart and put it back together in all of the wrong places to create old hundred as free jazz <laughs> before that like devolves into this abrupt chaos and has to unravel completely and we bring in a new hymn tune with um uh the flutes and the upper woodwinds in uh in the slow section after that and uh, we have uh, the moment where he has uh, the clarinets pull their head joints off to simulate crying babies in a church. And it's such a fascinating experience to be able to uh, have all of the literacy for these moments going on and be able to superimpose them. And it's one of the things, it, why, it's one of the reasons why the more time I spend with this piece, the more I love it more, because there's so much going on and it's so intricate and so special and so visceral. There's so many pieces where the more you learn about them, um, they become less fascinating sometimes. And the fact that, or, well, maybe that's not the best way to say it, but like the idea that you pull back the curtain by seeing the machinations and the man behind the curtain, so to speak, it's like, it's not as powerful as it used to be because you have such an intimate knowledge of what's going on. Like the magic has been ruined. But like the thing I love so much about David's music is you pull back the curtain, you see all the machinations that are going on and somehow you love it more because you can see that even though there are, there are flaws in that, there are sometimes where it's like, wow, David, I think this was a seriously tall ask. I don't know if people can really do that, but they'll make it work. And it's about capturing the power and the energy of the composer as they put their ideas on the page, but also the power and the energy of the performance in that space at that time, at that day with the circumstances that were going on. And I think about yesterday and how immense it was to be able to share that with so many people and to be able to share the stage um, a final time in such an emotional capacity with a teacher like Dr. Peterson. 
with all of my colleagues and uh, the other musicians with whom I might have played my last concert. And that's the real magic of it. And like, it was tearful in as much as it is joyful. Because I've, as I've said about a thousand times over the course of this podcast, it's not about uh, the joy being able to cancel the sorrow or the fear or the anger. It's that the only way we can really appreciate the joy and the love and the belonging that we have and the friendships we've built and the community that we've built and the experience that we've had and the collective humanity and the centrality of the idea that all of us are experiencing this in this way with the same energy and all of this emotion at the same time and in the same place is through that contrast. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Musical Trick Artista, the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.